Welcome to the Absite Smackdown podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Hello, it's me, Jess, your host of Absite Smackdown podcast. With me today, Dr. David Kashmir and Dr. Colton Lee. Hello. Hey guys, back again. It's good to be here for another round. And this is another topic that I just can't wait to explore with you both. Yeah, good morning. I'm excited about this one. I mean, when both of you guys are excited, that means it's going to be interesting. So basically today we're we're basing it off a study we saw in Science Direct called Past, Future, or Past. Yeah, that was horrible. Past, Future, or Present and Future of Surgical Residency. Yeah, just pretend that I can talk. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is why they do all the talking. Um, And... Really, even though it was an awesome study and it focused on all the parts, I think that we're going to focus more on the future of surgical residency and what that means. Am I correct, Dr. K? Well, yeah, like you said, this is sort of one person's take on it, but it sure is one eminently qualified person. Uh, and I think Dr. Noel went through and just kind of um, rolled through really the facts about the, the history of surgical residency, where we are now and where we're going. I'm really excited about this one uh, because it talks about where we're going and we're going to use a lot of the facts that he shared to explore changes Colton and I have seen and where we think the future is going for educating our colleagues and even as sort of as Colton winds up, what's what's in store for him. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's an interesting article. Um, And some of the points that he hits are, you know, just being a part of the Halstead method of training residents, right? This is something that was began in the 1880s. Uh, and it's a moving target that we're trying to hit and have been trying to hit for the last, you know, hundred and some odd years. Uh, so I think it's something that's going to change. It's changed, you know, from your training to my training. And then even throughout my training, there are a lot of, uh, advances that have been made throughout COVID that I think are going to have an impact on the future of surgery residency. Whenever I'm a grumpy, uh, old attending, uh, I get to roll up my sleeves and be Dr. K today whenever we're talking. <laughs> well, first, if you are going to be Dr. K, I should let you do the correction. It's it's Dr. Potts's article. Dr. Knowles, one we just read previously, but Dr. John Potts III, this is his write-up and gloss on it. So let me get the appropriate eminent surgeon's name on this. I know we're going to include the link and you can read it for yourself, but if you're going to be Dr. K today, let's at least correct me. Dr. Potts's uh, article that we're looking at. Yeah, it could so, have been any worse. <laughs> so, it, uh, and, you know, it's interesting. There are a couple of things that he touches on um, when talking about how what's changed in surgery recently. And, and one of my favorite things are the increase in, uh, you know, female representation uh, in the surgical force, because I think it's important. I recently read an article, uh, one of those, you know, flyers that we get uh, with general surgery news about how women who operate on women have much lower complication rates. Uh, when compared to a, a male surgeon operating on a, on a female patient. And I think that's really interesting. I think that's also, you know, care that translates. Uh, I've read a couple articles about uh, African-American OBGYNs who have lower birth complication rates when treating African-American females as compared to Caucasian uh, OBGYNs. I think it, in my personal life, and I think even like going forward in medicine, I think it's so important to have representation of, you know, men, women, you know, of all colors, of all sexualities, um, of all, you know, genders. I think it's very important to have, you know, a model 
that you can look forward to whenever you're growing up and, or even someone that you can see that looks like yourself and, and speaks as yourself and has your best interests at heart. Cause all physicians should have all patients best interests at heart. Um, but, and this is off topic, but sometimes I think that patients don't necessarily feel that way. And I think that's fair for them to feel. Um, so I think that's really exciting to see on the forefront. Yeah. I think even if the doctor does have your best interest, like perception is a big thing. Like, you know, some people perception is truth, whether it is or not. So just having someone similar to you is going to give them a feeling of comfort, even if, you know, the opposite slash Caucasian male would give you the same type of service, your perception of it is super helpful, just having the representation. So um, anyways, Dr. K. So I, this, I find this article funny because I feel like we're always doing kind of like the old school versus the new school, like, you know, our sensei versus our student. And, um, you know, someday you're going to be the sensei, Dr. Colton. And there's always these huge differences and like, you know, well, in my day versus my day. And um, so what do you think some of these differences are, you know, besides that you had to walk to residency in the snow, like uphill? <laughs> well, well, first, I think uh, Colton and I agree. Um, we may joke around about it being versus, but it's really Colton and me uh, versus uh, kind of all the different conditions patients have, et cetera. So we compare and contrast the experiences. And this article does a really nice job of kind of describing specifically what modern residency is and where it's going. And I think one thing, you know, Colton and I can agree on that we were talking about just before this started up is the product, and, and I own some of this, the product we're preparing to enter residency, the medical students that we are preparing to enter surgical residency are really not equipped in many ways uh, to do that. And I think Dr. Potts brings that out nicely um, for several uh, specific reasons, as he cites, including, you know, medical students really don't feel the call burden very much, if at all. They don't feel a lot of the electronic medical record and what it means to chart meaningfully and to try to be uh, appropriate with medically what's charted with all the fields that are demanded. As some physicians would say, we become more data entry clerks for this stuff. Uh, and I think that that's really a challenge that, you know, we're trying to address uh, when I wear the chair of surgery hat for the medical school. Uh, what am I doing to put together a product now that I can feel comfortable saying is equipped for success to continue on and learn more and eventually be a great surgeon. Uh, we do it with boot camps uh, as part of the way. We kind of have boot camps, even though they're going to get that as an intern. We try to show them specific things that they didn't have. But, and I'll, I'll throw the ball to Colton in a second. I think one of the challenges is students are being asked to decide what to do without having all the experiences, the breadth and scope of the what is sometimes marathon of uh, working in a surgeon's capacity. The Ampsite Smackdown podcast is going live. Reserve your seat for our upcoming live Ampsite review conference. Can't travel? On call? No problem. This online conference is recorded so you can catch up anytime. Reserve your spot by visiting us at AbsiteSmackdown.com and selecting latest news for more information. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, I would compare it to 
a marriage, right? Getting married without ever meeting your spouse uh, completely, which it, it happens, right? That is something that has been shown to be successful in the world. And, and people have very successful marriages in that situation. There's a Netflix um, show. Isn't there some Netflix show about that? There about is, there is. <laughs> um, See, I'm but, up to date. I'm current guys. What are you talking about? What are you, what are you guys talking about? It's on after Cobra Kai, I think on Netflix. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, or running a marathon without ever having run a 5k, right? You, you need a little taste of what you are jumping into and committing to for the rest of your life because it's a big commitment. Uh, and I think that there's not really an easy answer. There's not an easy way. You brought up the word hazing whenever we were talking about this episode because that's what it may equate to. Uh, if you're trying to give a medical student a fair um, understanding of what residency looks like for surgery and what surgery attending life that could be misconstrued as, you know, just giving the medical student a hard time or just making it unnecessarily difficult for them to get into residency. And I think that's not fair either, right? Yeah. Well, I really like your love is blind analogy for the first part that you see. I even know the name, guys. I'm so current right now. My finger's on the pulse. But in all seriousness, I think you're right. The challenge on the academic side, guys, is that uh, what educational value uh, does um having substantial night call, et cetera, mean. And I'm not asking that to say I feel one way or the other, but what I'm saying is when you think about what a medical student is doing on rotation, a lot of the endpoints are cognitive. What are they going to do on this end of rotation exam? Do they know what they need to know for surgery, no matter what field they go into, because many don't want to be surgeons. And then the argument of having them uh, feel a little bit more about what it's like to be day-to-day a surgical resident or attending with taking call, et cetera, that would make more sense maybe for the students who are trying to be surgeons. Uh, and, and my point is when we discuss this kind of in the academic circles, it's really hard uh, to get everybody together on what education means. Does that mean when they're on their surgical rotation, they should feel like a surgical resident or similar to one? Does that mean it's all about the cognitive stuff and what's testable only, that kind of cognitive stuff, or somewhere in between where they need to know how they perform even when they've had call? I don't have an easy answer, but right now where things have fallen is um, they don't take that level of night call. They don't chart in the EMR routinely, and there is a concern, just like Dr. Potts says, about what we're passing along to Colton and uh, what was being passed to me. Uh, when I was a residency director, there is no easy answer for this. But isn't there a fear that if we do give them the the big picture, the big vision, that it may push them away a bit from surgery? <laughs> well, it's a lot. It's a lot. You know, I'm I'm interested for what Colton says, but uh, nobody ever promised this was going to be easy. Right. And I know many people like an easier road. Um, but I like to think there's nothing more fulfilling than helping somebody out with the immediacy of surgery who's really sick. And it's really tough. It's amazing that when people don't do surgical stuff, they kind of forget what uh, it is uh, to get through all these things, both cognitive and technically. But uh, when you've done, you've been a surgeon and you've uh, learned it and practiced in it, um, I don't think there's more that is much more fulfilling in medicine. I really believe that. So you're right. Um, it, it may not be easy, but right. often what is very valuable in life, it's not easy. Yeah, but I think you need that honeymoon period, right? Like, cause you know, you have the honeymoon you still are madly in love and love during the marriage part, but like 
the honeymoon part helps you get through the hard parts of the marriage. So maybe having that honeymoon part of not seeing, just being in love with surgery and wanting to do it and not being completely like seeing all things helps you get through that easier. Again, I wouldn't know. Dr. Colton would know. You guys would know like how you feel about it, what you think going in. So very eager to see your point of view on this, Dr. Lee. As long as your honeymoon period lasts five to eight years. <laughs> yeah. I No, I think it's interesting because, you know, if I had a fair uh, understanding of what surgery residency looked like, I may not have chosen it for myself. Uh, whenever I was a you know, 22, 23 year old child, I was young, right? I'm still young now going through it. Um, I may have been 24. I don't know. It's all a blur, uh, but I'm still young now, but I will say I'm so thankful for the fact that I chose it, that I committed to it uh, and that I've made it this far. There are good things and bad things about my job now. And I'm very early in my career, but surgery has already given me, given me so many gifts it's changed my life because I live in a completely different place than where I started. And I'm a completely different person than I was four years ago for the better or the worse, sometimes depending on who you ask. Um, but I feel like I'm making it and I'm doing okay. And so I'm thankful for those things. There have been a lot of days where I've wanted to quit. Um, <laughs> but you have that with any job, you know, my parents had that with their jobs. My friends have that in their accounting and their architecture and their lawyer jobs and things like that. Everyone has good days and bad days, but mm -hmm. on the whole, as long as you're on the, on the good side of your curve, you're doing okay. The Absite Smackdown podcast, bringing you the best of your Absite review. I think that's well said. Uh, of course, your other friends have those moments when they're sitting on a beach or at home. And we have those moments at 2 a.m. when we're about to start a case. But I still think we're better off uh, in that venue and, and love what we're doing. And that's really what it comes down to. I do want to make sure, I know we have limited time, just like usual. I want to make sure we do talk about a couple elements of the future, including competency-based training and simulation. Um, part of the reason why is my other hat is as an associate dean for simulation. Uh, and so I want to explore that with uh, Colton and um, just kind of talk about it a little bit uh, for the listeners out there under the heading of what's coming. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this topic, right? So even during my residency, I've seen the beginning of uh, competency-based teaching, or not the beginning, but the expansion of it with COVID, um, where we have some exciting things that are coming down the pipeline from some big companies where we get to actually use not only, you know, videos of us operating uh, and to really be judged by people that are in other area or other parts of the country, um, to see a small clip of me doing a dissection where they can then rate it uh, and, and give me feedback. But beyond that, there's artificial intelligence that, that's coming about in the next you know, five, 10 years where they'll be able to judge whether or not my critical view of safety is an adequate critical view of safety in a gallbladder. I think it's going to revolutionize, you know, what surgery training looks like, where the endpoints are, because it won't just be, you know, you have to do 850 cases to be a good surgeon. It'll be, you have to be a capable, competent, and safe person doing this specific surgery to be able to move on. Mm -hmm. uh, and beyond that, I'll be able to, to kind of maybe one day sit back and talk about, well, in my, back in my day, we had to do the surgery ourselves with, uh, with knives and there was blood and, and, you know, guts and gore while you're sitting in your big 3d lounge chair with your hands like this and your screens all around, you know, <laughs> saving people on the moon. So who yeah. knows where it's going to be. 
Well, uh, it's really interesting that you say all that. I remember back when I was finishing um, fellowship, or maybe I was just a, an attending uh, who had um, taken over as a, a trauma and uh, a section chief for trauma and acute care surgery. I think this is where I saw it. Um, a training center, one of the large ones in the country, and I'll say the University of Pennsylvania, had for its fellows and, and team uh, for trauma, uh, almost like a tape review session, like a football team. They'd take their trauma resuscitations. They'd look at them. You know, I don't know if they had a telestrator like Madden, old school Madden style, you know, but they would kind of go through and focus on their resuscitations for many of the different things, uh, excess motion, decision-making, things going on in the Bay. And um, I think that was super useful. And it leads to this concept of proper practice. Uh, there's a bunch of books on um, volume-based training versus uh, proper practice training. Meaning like if you get a major league baseball swing coach who's focused on process, you may not need to swing the bat a million times to be okay at it. Volume tends to train us to kind of be mediocre and okay, but proper practice holds potential to train us with a lot less volume to a lot higher standard. And I think that's coming. I think we're wrestling with all the different things now that can get us to proper practice whether that's AI-based reviews, uh, surgeons over your shoulder looking at video from a headset or something similar for your critical view of safety, or something like that. It's tough because it, it doesn't always take into account the things that you do and don't have at your institution, the specific systems factors at your institution. Because again, medical errors, we know it's not often, well, Colton just misidentified the bile duct or there's replaced right hepatic and he just didn't know. And he just bovied through that with impunity. That's pretty unusual in terms of how um, errors occur. Uh, they tend to occur because, you know, um, they didn't have the equipment that so-and-so usually uses. They substituted this. There was this going on in the background with these interruptions. And it's not to blame everything else, uh, but man or people is only one component of how most things seem to occur. That whole Swiss cheese model that gets talked about. So I'm not sure what competency-based training will look like. I know in our simulation center, we're providing, as this grows in graduate medical education, we're providing graduate medical education this month for uh, ER residencies with cadaver-based training. I, I taught some of that lately. We have um, Delta Force, our military colleagues coming in for some non-trauma-based training to use our sim center be doing some education with them. We have um, a, an internal medicine residency coming in to use some of the different high fidelity mannequins, uh, like the uh, birth mother mannequin, and uh, just kind of all these different things. So right now, I think there's a hodgepodge of what's going on, um, but I, I think it's becoming more required, especially with low volume stuff. And the last thing I'll say is that residency um, Dr. Potts describes this really well. You know, what about those people who can't get trained to competency in five years or have a deficit? You know, he says pretty clearly residency is not going to be any longer than five years because nobody has money for that. No one's going to fund that training to make it longer. So, Colton, I'm interested to hear from you. What do you think is going to happen if competency based training comes and some people just can't get that Lap Coley critical view down? Um, those people might exist. Well, what now? The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at AbsiteSmackdown.com. 
Well, I think the other side of that is what happens when someone gets all their procedures, you know, mastered in three years? Do you let that surgeon graduate early? Absolutely. A related question for sure. And I think you pick up well, there's no good answer to either one. It's all just conjecture. Um, Do we let people accelerate through? Uh, because even if they have the technical stuff, do they have the cognitive stuff? Uh, and training the competency, and I like what you did to, to answer it with a related question, because I don't think anybody knows, but that's exactly those are exactly the questions that are coming up. Do we let people finish early if they've got it down already or they came in with prior knowledge? What do we do with the people who we can't get to where we'd like them to get to? And uh, basically, this is going to uh, open a whole new can of worms. Yeah, that's a fair uh, that's a fair assessment of my question. Instead of uh, assuming that I believe I'm a know-it-all resident that should graduate early, because I definitely <laughs> do it every second of my five years, plus maybe a couple extra four or five after that before I <laughs> before. <laughs> yeah. But no, it is fair because there are people that come into surgery residency that were PAs or nurses or first assists or you know have some baseline clinical knowledge before they begin, and and sometimes it helps them, sometimes it hinders them. So. I think it's interesting. I wonder going forward with surgery training, um, if there will be, you know, as the population expands, as people get sicker and there's more pathology that we see that's advanced, uh, maybe there's going to be a deficit that will be filled by mid-level providers, um, whether it's in the operating room or not, because surgery residency spots are steadily increasing. Uh, Medical graduates are always increasing, uh, but I don't know if it's increasing quickly enough to meet the needs of our population. So we're finding some creative ways to, to push people through and to, you know, be efficient with the care that we provide to do the, you know, most good for the most amount of people, but we might have to get more creative in some ways. What about, you know, the unequal, the unequal distribution when people finish, uh, you know, a lot of staff will want to continue into fellowship. They may not want to leave urban type centers or suburbia to go to rural centers. And that's been focused on now for years in the literature, Nobody coming to replace the gray-haired surgeons who do even C-sections in rural America. So what do we do for them? Uh, if, we're, if we have concerns about training to competency already, the people who are graying out of the market in um, rural centers, how do we replace them with this new competency-based model? Uh, these are the really difficult questions going on in residency now. And I think this article by Dr. Potts uh, really brings them all to the forefront. I think simulation is going to take a bigger lead. I think uh, some of the case volume is going to be hard to train. And last thing I'll say is the distribution of cases. Foregut cases, now that there's protonics and other things, are notoriously difficult for things like ulcer disease, certain complex hepatobiliary stuff to get residents involved in. Um, so that makes it tough because the distribution of cases is not always uh, what you might want it to be. We have a lot of challenges facing us now as we train the future and Colton. um, Thanks for handling these, Colton, when you finish. I'm really excited to delegate these. And, you know, I think you're, I think you're almost ready. A couple more years, you'll be ready to have all these problems passed on to you. Really. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it is a moving target. Uh, and most things are in the world. And so training residents, I think, uh, is something that's going to definitely evolve, um, especially the program. I it saw the 80% of people they estimate pursue fellowship training, uh, which is what you were just talking about. I think that's interesting because that only leaves 20% uh, of us general surgeons, uh, which is what I want to do when I finish. 
So I think it'll be interesting to see what the world looks like in 20 or 30 years. Hopefully you solve all the problems before it's my turn. I think it will be interesting just in 10 years. So. <laughs> all right. So Dr. K, we were already very clear. You're eager to leave this all to Dr. Colton so that you can retire. Just so excited for the future, Check Jessica. In. That was what I wanted to lead up to. <laughs> so excited. You know, Nothing else I'm to just, say. <laughs> the smile is broad. I'm glad I, I'm glad I've been able to describe the problems for Colton. Mm-hmm. I think that was mostly my function here. You know, somebody said once upon a time, if you can describe a problem, you're halfway to solving it. So Colton, you're welcome. Well, you're, you're more than halfway ready to solve these now. And, you know, as I fade off into the distance as a force ghost, uh, I'm happy to just kind of leave all these in what I'm sure are some very capable hands. So uh, I'll be, I'll be having coffee downstairs, Colton. Just give me a call when you've got it solved. Okay? <laughs> give me a call. Yeah. That sounds great. It sounds great. I appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. All right, guys. So we're leaving Really good talk. Lots for people to think about. I'm sure this is going to bring up some questions. We may have to do another episode uh, later on about this, see what we came up with. But thanks as always for having us or being on with me. Do you guys have anything else you want to say before I head us out? (laughs) I want to say we joke around about it a lot, um, but I want to leave people with the uh, sense of surgery is 100% awesome. I mean, what we do is really I think the most fulfilling thing uh, that you can do. So we joke about it because we can. And the fact that we know our issues and are addressing them, uh, it's kind of like M&M. One of the things about surgery is you take a very hard look at the part you can control, even though you know there are many other things, and you seek to maximize your part. uh, And then beyond that, all the systems factors for the other of the core competencies of which there are six total. So, you know, I want to leave everybody with a message that Colton and I joke around about it. You know, when, if we're having coffee or whatever, it's something we'll joke around about. But we know our issues in surgery. We're working to improve them. And you've already seen improvements with some of the distribution issues like Colton has uh, talked about. So that's kind of typical surgery. A lot of dark humor, really know our problems and uh, face them kind of head on to try to do better for the future. That's kind of where we are with stuff. So I want to leave everybody with that message in addition to the fact that I'm just going to fade away and kind of pass these to Colton. Yeah, just also remember, they wouldn't be doing anything else. All joking aside, they wouldn't choose anything else. No matter how hard it is, like every meeting, every prep we do, all these surgeons are very happy to be surgeons and wouldn't want to do anything else. So don't let us dissuade you (laughs) with our jokes. So, all right, guys, thank you again for being on. And as always, hashtag Absite Smackdown. Get more AppSite content in your daily routine. Visit us on Instagram at daily.appsite.fact, on Facebook at AppSite Smackdown, or LinkedIn at AppSite Smackdown. And you can catch the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any place you listen to your favorites. Don't forget our YouTube channel, AppSite Smackdown.